Welcome. My name is Ryan Merkley. I'm a director with Aspen Digital. Thanks for joining us. This is part of a series of briefings on myths and disinformation hosted by the Aspen Institute as part of our Commission on Information Disorder. We're talking with experts in the field as they help us make sense of the many facets of the information crisis. These are intended to be a resource both for the public and also for our commissioners as they explore these issues. We hope that you find them useful and informative. In today's episode, I am speaking with Brandy Collins-Dexter. She's a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and a senior fellow at Color of Change. She's currently writing a book about the history and trajectory of Black political, economic, and social power as it relates to the loss of offline Black-owned and controlled spaces. Today, we're going to talk about disinformation campaigns that target Black communities and other harms that are felt in targeted communities. Brandy, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Really looking forward to this conversation with you. Um, let's dive right in and we'll have time to, to dig into the details. We know that there are real world harms caused by the spread of mis and disinformation. And it's clear that content targeted at specific racial and ethnic groups can be the most dangerous and lead to real world harms. So let's start with kind of a baseline on how disinformation campaigns have been used historically to target and disrupt black and brown communities. And we'll take some time together to unpack some of that. Yes, of course. And so I think oftentimes when people talk about um, disinformation, they tend to talk about it in very high tech, um, very um, kind of ahistorical ways in terms of the ways in which that's been weaponized, um, particularly targeting marginalized communities. And uh, one of the things that I'm writing about and one of the things that we talk about often at Color of Change and Shorenstein as well is that there's a long history of disinformation being used to create um, chaos. And so um, whether you look at newspapers, um, and the history of um, creating specific narratives like the welfare queen trope or, um, you know, the kind of like epidemic of crack babies or, or other kind of like super predator language that's been used as a direct link to past policies that then have devastating impacts on black communities. Um, that's some of the things that we've seen um, traditionally in uh, my report, Canaries in the Coal Mine. We talk about um, yellow fever in the early 1900s and how there was originally a lot of mythology spun up that black people um, could not get um, yellow fever and were not, um, because they had like we had like magical qualities and because of that a lot of black communities were actually devastated in Philadelphia and other places and so there's this long history of disinformation um, and we we distinguish because there's things like misinformation um, which I define as um, you know information that's amplified that's inaccurate and may not be intentional maybe just through the grapevine people sharing inaccurate information and then there's disinformation which is a very intentional way of creating chaos hostility mistrust 
particularly in government institutions. And so that's something that we've seen have a long history and we've seen that play out um, more recently, uh, most notoriously in the 2016 um, elections with disinformation being used by uh, Russian troll farms to predominantly target black voters, but really targeted a number of different voters, Latino voters, um, right-wing uh, working class white voters. And we still see that disinformation continuing today and it's evolved in a number of different ways through COVID and continued um, tampering with elections. So disinformation, not new, propaganda, not new, but some of the tools are new and there's some new tools out there and you, you alluded to them. And so I wanna spend a bit of time in that. Um, maybe maybe there's a specific example and, and maybe it's the election which you just referenced, but you know, what does an anti-black disinformation campaign look like? Um, what mm -hmm. makes them successful? Let's can we just talk us through some of the elements that uh, that make them work and tick and what you have seen. Yes, I, I think disinformation um, campaigns in general tend to work through isolation. So particularly by taking specific groups and creating um, this climate where they're only like a filter bubble is what we would say, you know, um, in online language where you're only being fed certain type of information um, that really shapes your analysis in a way that operates outside of um, additional facts and information. And so some of the things that we've seen are things like keyword squatting. So um, the hijacking or creating online content around specific um, search engine optimized terms so that anyone even trying to search for information is only going to find uh, really specific types of information. We've seen PragerU actually use this for years to push content around things like the term social justice and occupying the space social justice warriors. So that when you Google that, it tends to come up a lot of anti-social justice content. Um, we, we've seen this more recently around the 1619 project and continued attacks on, on that project and the integrity of that project and particularly Hannah Nicole Jones and, and her incredible work around that project, really um, weaponizing the online space and the ability to create uh, what Dana Boyd calls um, content collapse. So you enter, what that means is like you enter into this space and you're engaging with people, but you may not necessarily know who they are, what their intentions are, um, and you're surrounded by a lot of language frames and messaging that's geared towards a certain end. And so there's a lot of ways in which um, the internet world is able to be hijacked, especially when we're operating on, you know, one to three major platforms, as opposed to a more diverse array of communications platform options. It makes it really easy to create these kind of like artificial climates where disinformation can thrive. Yeah, I want to talk about 1619 a little bit, especially because it's found its way back into the headlines for the kind of worst possible set of reasons right now. You studied this with Joan Donovan and published on it, I think, past this past March. It's 1619, as you noted, is in the headlines this week after the University of North Carolina denied tenure to Nicole Hannah-Jones, who made her extensive list of qualifications, and you already know this, but won a Pulitzer Prize for her work on 1619 really couldn't have a more qualified person to be uh, in that position. I'm interested in the media's role 
in that story, when you talk about keyword squatting on things like critical race theory and some of the other terms that they've really uh, kind of juiced up in order to, uh, to to kind of drive people, what does that what does that look like? And how does that then kind of, I don't know what the, if it's the right word, but kind of metastasize out as it goes on to social media? Yeah. Well, again, I think this is, again, one of those moments where it's important for us to understand um, the history on attacks of what today is called critical race theory, but historically has been uh, merely diversifying education curriculum and telling a story from the standpoint of multiple different communities and voices. So looking at um, the truth and experience of Black people in America, not through a thin slice, but through a more broad slice. Like we're just now finding out about um, things like Tulsa um, and the burning of, of Black Wall Streets, but there's actually several Black Wall Streets that once existed in this country um, that were all attacked and some of that history was buried. And so the KKK in the early part of the 20th century um, knew that one of the ways to really shape culture was by having control of education systems and stories. And so you have a number of members of the KKK that are running and getting on school boards all across the country. And that's one of the reasons why, if you notice, there's a lot more schools that are named after um, Confederate generals, um, you know, even in the, in the Midwest and the North than you do in the South. Like there's more Robert E. Lee schools than there are Ulysses S. Grant schools. That's not an accident. That's, that's part of the shaping of curriculum. So you look at today right. and, and really what you see playing out is this fight to control, this continued fight to control the narrative about who is America, who belongs in America, who built America and who defines America. And the 1619 Project was really about challenging some of these notions and ideas of who are the heroes of America and who are the architects of America. Um, and, and part of what we've seen are attacks actually from the left and the right. It, it hasn't just been, mm -hmm. um, you know, exclusively the domain of right-wing attacks. We've seen a lot of leftists come after this project too, and really um, challenge a lot of the work that went into that. Now from the right wing, you see that more manifesting in this coalition around 1776 and this reassertion of um, this, you know, mythical time in America where white men ruled. And for Donald Trump, particularly as president, um, he, maintained a, an investment in this idea of this very white story of America. And for a lot of his um, followers, they also maintain that story. So as I mentioned, you see a lot of keyword squatting, um, you see a lot of different tactics that are used to shift the narrative. And the way that media often plays into that is a number of ways. One, in the content and information that they choose to amplify, whose story that they tend to tell if you do a media analysis breakdown. Um, you can often find a lot more content that's talking about the critiques of, of critical race theory than talking about the, the merits of critical race theory. It's Again, it's like one story often being told, even when people are being critical of Trump or being critical of um, right-wing entities. And you see a similar thing with white nationalists. Oftentimes we know the names of, when we look at gun violence, we often can name the Dylan Roofs. We can name, the attackers of communities, but we can't name the nine people 
that Dylan Roof murdered in a church in South Carolina. And that's part of the work of the media to tell a story that even in um, the trauma of other communities still centers a white mammoth. When you talk about the keyword squatting, I'm also familiar with Dana Boyd's work on data voids. Um, how do those sort of two concepts relate um, or overlap perhaps? I think that there's um, a lot of different ways in which you see these like, these data voids and this sort of absence of information, this clearing out of specific information, the centering of, of, of other information combined with context collapse, combined with keyword squatting, uh, that really does make the internet an interesting place in that we have more access theoretically to any kind of information than we've ever had, I would say, in the history of the world. Like information literally at your fingertips, like on your phone and a number of other places. But because of the ways in which the internet is built and the ways in which content is um, served up and amplified in specific ways and suppressed in other ways, uh, we're really left with a more limited story. Um, and a more limited access to information. And so all of those things layer on top of each other. And one of the things that I used to talk about is that, um, you know, white nationalism in Silicon Valley is actually a thing. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, oh, people have a mind supremacist mindset. Like I'm talking explicitly um, some of the disproportionate number of donations that went to platforms like Stormfront, that went to certain white nationalist sites, came from Silicon Valley, came from San Jose. And so that's one aspect at play. The other aspect at play is the absence of diversity in Silicon Valley, which means these algorithms, which are these like black box of data inputs, again, whose inputting that data like and what's coming out on the other end and part of what we began to see from different things like that is how that impacts your google search um this is a slightly different this is a slightly different tangent but when i was at color of change we were doing a lot of work around r kelly and um an r kelly documentary that was released a couple of years ago and uh some of the black women that came forward and talked about um their encounters with r kelly and um how they were you know, basically held hostage they were targeted with revenge porn and so when i was going to do campaign work around that we were going to do campaign around work around that i googled revenge porn to try to find data stats and found a lot of information about revenge porn and got a lot of anecdotes about white women and revenge porn. And when I Googled black revenge porn, nothing came up around that. Instead, what came up were a lot of hardcore porn videos with black women in, um, in a racial uh, sex scenarios. And so like, you couldn't find out any information about black women and revenge porn. It's like those little like, things that we experience online every day that, again, are telling us a story that we don't even think about. Yeah. I feel like, um, I think in your work with Color of Change, you also testified before the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, and you talked about some of these issues around <laughs> algorithmic bias and profiling. And I, I wanted to, I, f I feel like there's um, a bit of room to unpack that and to talk about how, uh, how the algorithm actually manifests, because we hear a lot about 
the algorithms are a black box. We don't understand what it means. And you just started to talk a little bit about it. I'd love to hear a bit more about like, what is it? How does it manifest? How does that bias manifest when you search for, I think the example you used in your testimony was black girls. And like, what does that mean? And what do you get versus what you get if you look for other things? And I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more from you on that. Yes, I mean, I think, so the thing about algorithms is that there's a lot of different moving definitions of, of what they are and, and how they work. But because they are a product of corporations, one thing that they've been able to hide around is this idea of kind of like secret sauce protection, um, which means that these companies aren't forced to be transparent about what sorts of inputs go into developing um, your searches and what comes up. And so there's work that's been done um, by folks like Latanya Sweeney that have begun to demystify that things like if you enter in a black sounding name, you're more likely to get an ad that um, you know says, uh, does this person have a criminal record? And that person or that name may not at all be attached to a criminal record, but what that's putting in the mind of anyone that's searching, particularly perhaps somebody, a potential employer, is that when you see that ad, it triggers in your mind that, oh, this person might have a criminal record. So it reinforces that criminality. And, and Safia Noble also talks about this issue with algorithms of oppression and, and her work at Google before she's gone on to do the amazing work that she's doing now. And again, um, it, because of the fact that we don't know, there are engineers that are working, that are creating these inputs. They're putting in a bunch of different data points um, that are then supposed to adjust to how you're searching and how you're moving through the world. But we don't know what those inputs are. Like we know, for example, when we look at policing technology and we look at how algorithmic bias plays out in policing, we know that if you have a history of racist policing, a history of only targeting black communities, a history of stop and frisk, and you put all of those data inputs into the machine, the machine doesn't like into the algorithms that doesn't iron it out and all of a sudden make it pristine and neutral. The tech will never be neutral. The tech will just serve as another way to reinforce pre-existing biases. And so those are the kind of things that we see, um, you know, offered up all the time that, again, we, we operate under the assumption that these things are happening in a neutral context, but they never are neutral. Right. And everything's built on what comes before it, which reminds me not only of Sophia's work, but also Tim Ned Gebru's now sort of infamous paper, which talked about if the inputs in text language processing are uh, based on uh, material that may have racial bias, then the outputs can only be so as well. Yeah. And there's um, another thing. So like in the in the book that I'm working on, um, one of the things I'm talking about is the historical ways that Black people have organized. And so Black people traditionally have organized outside of a left-right spectrum of political ideology. And where a lot of that organizing has happened is in physical spaces like churches, like Black-owned businesses, um, through newspapers and other institutions like that that we're continuously losing. And those are the places where Black people are able to kind of reconcile ideology in service of a Black political agenda. But what we see now is like a combination of the loss of those offline spaces and then online people attempting to build community and organizing structure. But the problem is that the internet and the algorithms are built on a um, left-right 
political ideology. And so we see Black people, particularly one of the things that we're tracking at Shurenstein is people getting pushed further and further into these filter bubbles and not being able mm. to find each other. And so you see all of these offshoots of different um, Black communities that are Black right-wing communities, Black manosphere, like um, all of these different filter bubbles that are popping up that are kind of hardening people within that particular context and is then interfering with the ability to cross organize in a ways that we've traditionally been successful doing. I want to come back to, to that and we'll, we'll get to it at the, in the end of this section here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about COVID. Um, you know, there's been a, a lot of discussion about how black communities are being disproportionately harmed by the pandemic, both in the information environment, but also in the real environment and access to services and treatment and, and vaccines. And in 2020, I think you already referenced this uh, at the top of this conversation, you wrote a paper kind of analyzing mis and disinformation around COVID-19 in online spaces. Um, and in it, you, you talked about five factors that influence these campaigns, uh, some of them current and some of them historical, I kind of bucket them that way. So on the historical side, you've got um, historical oppression, medical mistrust and caution and healthcare redlining. And then on the kind of current factors, you've got internet platforms and, and media under reporting. And I want to talk about those two buckets with you. Um, and maybe just ask if you can spend a couple of minutes with me here and, and talk about these factors and how they play into something like the COVID-19 response and, and the impact on communities. So maybe let's start in the past with the historical factors around historical oppression, medical mistrust and caution and healthcare redlining. Can you talk a bit about how those factors play into this? And then we'll talk about the current state and the new tech. Yes. Um, so I, I mentioned um, yellow fever um, mm -hmm. in the past and, and the misunderstanding about whether or not Black people were susceptible to that. But on the flip side of that, for, for Black people, we have a long history of um, medical misdiagnosis of um, chronic undertreatment. Um, there's a lot of data studies that show that that um, Black people, like even when they're articulating to their doctor that they feel pain, um, are are less likely to be given the correct dosage for that thing. Thing you have high incidence of. Um, uh, maternal um, death and, and, and failures of, of Black mothers and, and Black children that happen in, a, in the hospital room. My dad last year actually uh, passed in December and, and had a number of That's issues, right. which I think directly stem from uh, medical mistreatment and, and failure to really um, try to, you know, understand and, and work with the patient. And, and essentially he died from untreated ulcers, which the doctors knew about. And I don't know very many people in the 21st century dying from untreated ulcers, but that those are the kind of things that happen, I think, when the, when the system is stretched to the limit. And I said, you know, if he had gone in for the procedure he went in for in 2019 or 2021, he would have been fine, but it was 2020. And when people have those kind of experiences with doctors, a feeling like they're not being heard of, a feeling like they're not being seen, they're not being treated. Um, or, you know, certain incidents, like the no most notorious one is the Tuskegee Air, the Tuskegee Project, where um, Black men in a, in a hospital were, were left with untreated syphilis and essentially left to die in these really horrible ways for the purposes of, of, of medicine and research. When you see all of those, when we have those experiences, um, 
it makes it really easy for the online space to exploit those, to cultivate additional mistrust about going to the doctor, around working with the doctors, and about wanting to do things like home remedies or, or seek alternative treatments that people feel like could you know, uh, be more successful than having to negotiate uh, a strapped um, medical system, which has all sorts of issues, you know, attached to it, uh, in, including extreme costs. Like every time you go to the doctor, every time you take an ambulance, you know, you may have to pay a lot of money that you don't have. So, so all of those things kind of build up. And so in the, in the early days of COVID, uh, we saw a lot of misinformation and disinformation that was floating around uh, and, and it was different types. So in the early days, it was that black people couldn't get COVID. And, and a lot of that, again, goes back to failures of media. So when we went back, when I went back with Shorenstein Center to look at the um, you know, data and tracking, actually some of the earliest cases in the US, at least the US, if not globally, were black people dying. But because of, uh, let me say this, early cases where we knew COVID, was the cause, like who knows, you know, how many cases if we were going back into 2019 or early in 2020. But because the, the media didn't report on um, things like race or name or other like indicators of those deaths, those stories remained contained within those micro communities or neighborhoods where those people died. So for all intents and purposes, as we're reading the media, even as we're seeing COVID deaths, we're not really being able to put a context on it that it's disproportionately black people from the beginning that are that are being harmed and impacted. So in the online space, um, it, it starts to, to be to move around that black people can't die from COVID. Um, there's other mythologies like um, that healthcare remedy, that that natural home remedies can are a cure for COVID, which is again, when we wrote the report, I wanted to be clear, it's not me saying, don't do, you know, natural remedy, don't take care of your body or don't do any of those things. But it is also important to try to see a medical practitioner to try to at least get diagnosed to try to, you know, make these other interventions as much as we don't always trust um, the system yeah. to do that due diligence. But, you know, again, being told don't go to the doctor, just sit at home and drink like, you know, hot tea with ginger or something and that you saw again a lot of drink alkaline water there were all of these other kind of things um, another piece that was traveling in the early days uh, which wasn't confined to the black community it was actually really popular globally is this idea that 5g um, was the cause of um, COVID and what was really sad about it though in the black community is when I heard when we saw people pushing that they were saying, look, black people are not dying. And that's because we don't have 5G in our community. So they're in 5G is the cause of it. So again, you're looking at all of these systemic failures that are mounting on top of each other. And that was the early days of COVID. Um, later on, we saw, uh, you know, those, those um, ideas shift a little bit to the intentional black genocide. Of black people and the killing of black people, um, which then, you know, led into a bit of early vaccine hesitation. I would say now again, the issue is more like access to vaccines in black communities than it is necessarily vaccine hesitation. But again, you can see how like in online spaces, that kernel of truth 
of, of things that have happened, of historic failures, of systemic failures, of you know community failures, uh, really branch into this like whole mass hysteria quite easily when when contained to the online space. Um, you went went by it really quickly, but I just want to acknowledge the loss <laughs> of your dad. I'm really sorry for your loss. That's terrible. Uh, this story is terrible. Um, you talked about vaccine hesitancy, which I was going to ask you about next anyway, and, and maybe you've already answered my question, but you, you know, as the vaccine started to become available at the beginning of the year, there was a lot of talk about vaccine hesitancy amongst blacks in America, references to some of the things you, the historical things that you already explained and just talked about, but nearly six months after the vaccine rollout has sort of started, some have suggested, including you just moments ago, that the real factor is actually systemic failures to make vaccines available in black communities, the disproportionate uh, number of black individuals who are in service work and are in frontline work where they don't have protections that they need in order to be to avoid being infected, etc. So I'm, I want to ask you, are the issue, is the issue around vaccine hesitancy, in your view, about misinformation, or is it actually about systemic racism and inequality, or is it both? <laughs> I would say it's about both. I, I do think that uh, misinformation and disinformation and lack of access to information in our communities is a huge factor. Um, in people's ability to get vaccinated or is a hindrance to people um, being able to get vaccinated. Uh, some of the data, interestingly though, that I've seen is that um, it tends to be younger people. And I mean like people under 40 that are actually expressing more vaccine hesitation um, than older people. So I think that in and of itself probably speaks to uh, what's being cultivated on, in the online environment because generally younger people tend to be uh, more online, though across the board, particularly for Black communities, Black people are more on technology and more fastest adopters of new technology, more likely to recommend new technology to people. Um, older people are more likely to be engaging on Facebook and WhatsApp, I believe, which tend to be the highest factors for some of the um, you know, disinformation spread to a certain extent, or at least documented. Um, and so I, I do think the information economy is, is playing in here. There's also the piece of, as I mentioned, around access to where to go. So anecdotally, my family's from Chicago. And um, in the city, uh, you know, one of the things that my mom and my family members were noting is that there would be um, vaccination sites in black neighborhoods and the only people that would be in line would be like younger white people getting vaccinated. And, and part of the reason why is because the people in the neighborhood didn't even necessarily know that that was a vaccination site and people were able to use the apps like Nextdoor. Nextdoor was actually one of the apps that people were using to find out where to go get vaccinated. So because of that connection attack, some people knew where to go and some people didn't. But again, I, I think as far as like how to really fail at rolling out a successful vaccination pro process, um, the government has a lot to, to own around that. I think, you know, in my personal opinion, of course, uh, leaving it, you know, state and local as opposed to a federal rollout, I think 
was a, a really harmful thing to do. And, and we saw a lot of failures around where vaccinations were getting rolled out in a disproportionately racial ways. In Chicago, um, the disparities were huge, but there were like a number of different cities where it was like more white people of different ages were getting vaccinated. And I even remember here in my block in Baltimore, um, you know, I'm 40 and like there were some younger white people on my block that that were not frontline workers that had all gotten vaccinated before I was even getting a notification that I was eligible. And they were finding a lot of ways, again, to share information about where to go, how to get vaccinated, how to find out where people are um, have vaccinations that are about to um, expire so they could run up there and go get vaccinated. And those information networks were things that like, you know, I didn't have access to or that a lot of black people don't have access to. You talked about the the role and the responsibility of government, and I, I want to also give you the opportunity to talk a bit about the role and responsibility of the platforms and the media. Um, you know, when you think about these harms, about these historical uh, conditions that can either be exploited or acknowledged, um, you know, what are some of the things that you think the media or the platforms should be doing to counteract these harms? What are, what are some of the things they should take on? Yes. Um, so in the early days of COVID, part of what prompted me to write the report for Shorenstein Canaries in the Coal Mine is because I was, I was still working full time at Color of Change. And we were doing a lot of work negotiating with tech companies. We were constantly on the phone with Facebook, with Twitter, with Google, YouTube. And we were also tracking online some of the different things that we were seeing around all different types of disinformation and you know, political disinformation, others that were directly impacting black communities. And so we began to see um, these mythologies floating around that black people couldn't get COVID, uh, you know, a number of different things. And the first company that we, we actually went to and, and put on their radar was Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to them in a meeting and I'll, I'll never forget, we mentioned this was a serious issue that they should be looking at. And their executive said, okay, we'll look into it. And then a couple of days later, oh, we don't really think this is a problem. And um, my campaign director on my team went and took, like went and scraped different platforms and got evidence, not just of what information was traveling, but how much it was being circulated. So like this, this has like a million retweets. This has, you know, however many likes and shares and then handing that to the company and saying, we think this is a problem. Well, I would say today, and in some ways one could argue that Twitter ended up being one of the best actors of the online platforms in terms of like immediately jumping on dealing with, um, you know, racialized disinformation and COVID disinformation and um, even political disinformation. But again, it's like you see a lot of these companies that are very hesitant to really um, take accountability. YouTube, a lot of disinformation travels on there via videos. They have not made, um, you know, access, they have not opened up access in a way that allows researchers to really track in the ways that they can for, for good or bad Facebook or other platforms disinformation. And so that is like the least, I would say, researched platform YouTube, even though that very well could be the biggest factor for disinformation. And so these companies really, um, have to be held accountable by the government. They have to hold themselves accountable for what 
their how they are shifting society and democracy and how they really are shaping narratives in a number of ways in a in a faster way than mainstream media can like mainstream media is racing to catch up um, with the internet world and part of that has led to more mistakes by the media because they're trying to push content out really quickly they're understaffed there you know a lot of newsrooms are are getting cut and you know people are getting taken off beats or people are holding like multiple beats and therefore unable to establish a certain amount of expertise in one beat or another and so that's another thing that feeds into that or they're chasing stories and amplifying something so that that becomes a story and that's a huge part of what I think is the, the thing about Black people and vaccine hesitation. I think in some ways, a lot of that was amplified and drove a lot of decision making because of the media. And it didn't leave room for the story of, you know, a, a why people would be hesitant and, and what we have to talk about about failures of the medical system. But again, as, as vaccines started to roll out and there wasn't access in Black communities, we couldn't have that conversation around the fact that I knew a lot of people that couldn't wait to get vaccinated but had no place mm. to go because the whole conversation was being driven by the media around this idea that Black people just don't want to get vaccinated. Do you see a difference in how the media has treated anti-vaxxers versus vaccine hesitant black communities? Oh, that's an interesting question. Is there a difference? I mean, I think there's always a difference in, in the media. I think there's a paternalistic way in which um, the black community is dealt with within the media. Um, that I think can be, um, yeah, patronizing and dehumanizing in its in its own way, and it it creates this narrative almost that like black people are more inclined to fall for disinformation disinformation tactics, which there's no data out there that shows that that's true at all. And in fact, black people have a long history of having to negotiate disinformation, as we talked about. Um, and when it comes to anti-vaxxers, I think there's some very good. I, I would say um. I have to admit that I, I don't, I haven't done a media scan on this. So I know that there's some like excellent reporters out there um, that are doing some of this work. I wish I could um, uh, name drop them all. I know Brandy, um, I forget her last name and Ben Collins, but there's like some different reporters out there that are that are really doing some interesting work looking at anti-vaxxers. And um, I believe Brandy released an article a month ago that was talking about um, how um, anti-vaxxers were using this narrative of Tuskegee to push disinformation at Black people in order to fuel um, Black um, vaccine hesitancy. But I think overall, the ways in which these stories are told is one, it's often told through a political lens and so that these are only right-wing anti-vaxxers that are like foot soldiers of Trump. Um, they don't talk about the full scope of um, how the information is moving through tactics like keyword squatting through, um, you know, some of the other tactics talked about in the media ma manipulation handbook that Sherenstein released. Um, so yeah, I think I, I, I definitely have to think about that more, but that was a good question. But like in terms of, yeah, there are, I think some different differences in terms of like how villains are named and shamed and how institutions are talked about for sure. 
Right. And how some people, you said paternalistic, how some people are treated as just not understanding and how other people are treated as, you know, inquisitive and questioning in their approaches and, you know, just looking out for their families and yeah. Yes. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned Facebook. And so I want to talk a little bit about Facebook. Um, in 2018, you were part of an advocacy uh, campaign that uh, kind of called them to produce a civil rights audit of their platform. A uh, huge piece of work that you were part of with lots of other folks doing that work. Um, why was that important? Why was a civil rights audit important for Facebook? And what's been the impact of, of having that audit been done? Yeah, so the, so the work starts, I have to remember if it's 2015 or 2014, but um, it, it took us actually years to get Facebook to commit to a civil rights audit. And the first time we asked for it was right after we and other groups had worked with Airbnb um, to do this comprehensive audit. And I think Airbnb, while Black, um, was trending that summer. And it might have been going into 2016 election. Um, and we and others met directly with the highest levels of leadership at Airbnb and really called them to task about some of the ways in which Airbnb was doing a disservice to Black people, to Black communities, not just their, you know, what they were doing in terms of the experience for people using Airbnb, um, but for what was happening in the communities, which gentrification and, and, and market pricing, you know, use of surveillance technology and a number of different things. And so um, this call for an audit was I think in a lot of ways uh, a game changer for Airbnb. They brought in Laura Murphy, who was a civil rights attorney, actually a family here from Baltimore owned uh, one of the oldest black newspapers in the country. And we really saw with them a certain amount of seriousness around trying to get things right. And they haven't been perfect, but that became a model for us for how we wanted to approach um, different, you know, Silicon Valley companies for us as an organization and for us as a broader like tech accountability movement and the people that have been involved in that. And so going into 2016, we were noting an uptick in um, doxing and anti-Black violence happening online and in shared Facebook groups, people were sharing the information of um, BLM activists. And, and there was a group in Atlanta where this, this woman, white nationalist came to our home when she was with her children and she felt like she was gonna get killed. Mm -hmm. And she came to us about that. And we went to Facebook, we met with them in Menlo Park and they didn't want to take action. Um, they really danced around the issue a lot. And a number of other issues happened. Corinne Gaines uh, was murdered in her home in Baltimore uh, after police. And she was doing a Facebook Live and the police called Facebook and told them to turn off the cut the feet. They did. She died. We don't know that she was killed. We don't know the full details of how. And so that worked with us. Um, some of us, uh, media justice and, and a bunch of other groups was actually the first time that we called for a civil rights audit. And we got this letter back from um, Joel Kaplan that was a, very condescending and, and said that he absolutely, and he's the, I can't remember his formal title, but he's the highest level, I believe, policy person there. And um, that they would never in a million years do a civil rights audit. 
And so we really had to be really savvy about some of our tactics with that. You know, a couple of things that we did is, um, you know, color change in Muslim advocates. Uh, you know, when, when the first Mark Zuckerberg hearings happened, we like ran the table and went to every member of Congress that was gonna be, you know, quizzing Zuckerberg and tried to plan a question about the civil rights audit. Uh, Senator Booker, um, I think because he was so late down the line, um, you know, all the other questions that he had, had been asked and he had this civil rights audit question that that we had sent him in a memo and so he asked it and mark zuckerberg said that's a very good idea senator and we were kind of off to the races and so <laughs> we we went to really hold him accountable on that you know and all the groups came together coalescing around you know this civil rights audit and, and trying to bring laura murphy who was part of airbnb audit led the airbnb audit onto facebook and so it's been it's been a long process. It's been a messy process. Um, we found out later at Color of Change that um, that you know that that Facebook had actually attempted to smear us in right wing press, which led to an uptick of us getting a lot of um, violent calls and and, and death threats. Um, but what I would say is, and it's still obviously ongoing. I've left, but it frightens me to think how the election could have gone as messy as the 2020 election went and there was still disinformation we shouldn't operate under any um you know illusions that there wasn't disinformation uh, michael tubbs mayor of sacramento was actually severely targeted with intentional disinformation um campaigns as a direct result of having local media deserts and so it's still happening but because of the ways that the, the outcomes of the audit and the things that we were able to push them on, we were able to get them to take unprecedented steps of taking down content, of labeling content, of doing a number of different things um, that then other companies like Twitter and YouTube were, were kind of forced to, to incorporate some of that, which I do think made the election more fair than it would have otherwise been. So I, I do think that the audit worked, but I think it's frustrating for us as advocates because we know they can go further. And for everything we they do, we know there's 10 steps further at least that they can go. And for everything we find out, we know they know more about the failures of their systems, but it's just always that dance of kind of like pulling teeth and just trying to get a little bit closer to justice. Hmm. Congratulations on that work. It sounds like it's having uh, a continued impact. And so I want to end with solutions. And then I have one final question for you to offer you the opportunity to give some advice to our commission. So what, what do you think are the solutions here? Um, you know, what, um, you know, the, the civil rights audit may be, uh, may be one of those solutions that, um, that has obviously shown to have benefit and has, and has had a, a far reaching impact even beyond Facebook. Um, but what have you seen that works to combat these kinds of campaigns? What kinds of steps in, uh, have, uh, do you think are really key or important that stick out to you, uh, to either prevent them or to prevent them from gaining traction as they, as they make their way out onto the press and onto the social media? Yeah, I mean, I think this thing is so as we've talked about in this conversation, right, and it's like, there's so many different factors that feed into to where we where we are right now is, and I, I think at the time, I was a bit naive, because I really did think that the 
civil rights audit could be this kind of magic wand solution to a certain extent. Like, I don't know if I really thought that, but I, di I did think that it could lead to a bunch of um, sweeping, lasting changes for the industry. Um, but that was naive. I, I mean, I think the civil rights, you know, audit is one tactic that I that I do think is worthy, particularly for organizations that want to continue working directly with companies to push for some transparent way of checking them. I do think it continues to be important. We received a lot of critiques of color of change, which I heard, you know, from people and understood that it's like these companies, like, why are you focused on the companies? Like, it has to be about government intervention. These companies aren't going to get better. They don't want to get better. They want to get bigger. They want to get faster. They want to be less transparent. They want to have more lobbyists. So we have to focus on, you know, um, these government interventions. And I don't think it's either or. I think we have to have people working at all places. And so I, I do think that there's advocacy that needs to happen on the federal level. Um, we've seen through different hearings with the CEOs of Silicon Valley, um, a shift in tone. Initially, when they came into these hearings, it was like, how can how can we Congress help you? And now there's more of a critical eye being applied to that. Um, there's all sorts of innovations that can happen at the state level, both through legislation, through attorney generals, um, through a number of different mechanisms that I think are worth looking into. I, I can't remember how many AGs have filed lawsuits against um, the tech companies, but it's been a significant number of them. And so I think, you know, some of that local advocacy work as well. I think one thing that people aren't paying attention to are things like data centers and how how these companies are moving into to local areas. And so a lot of people um, galvanize and organize around the Amazon headquarters and really shed a light on the giveaways that cities and states were willing to make to bring Amazon there. And New York was successful in, in keeping out the Amazon headquarters. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Facebook actually has a number of data centers around the country in rural places. A lot of these companies have data centers and they are getting a lot of perks and benefits and tax loopholes and not delivering jobs into those communities. And so that's another, I think, space for local advocacy where, where there could be more done. I think in terms of being better about what the interventions are online, things like algorithmic rewards for people that are already doing the work to attack disinformation. I think that's a good, we've seen a lot of failures of content moderators and we've seen a lot of people organically doing fact checking in their different spaces and filter bubbles. And I think, you know, companies working more to, to amplify those folks. I think there can be some interesting solutions that come up there. And then the broader um, piece I'll say is that media deserts, like the absence of local community independently owned media is part of what gives the internet so much power. And again, I go back to the example of Michael Tubbs. He was attacked by the 205 Times, which was a credible local news outlet in Sacramento for a long time and got um, bought up and, you know, had to switch their model to an advertising model and, and open the door to a lot of disinformation. So the person that runs the 205 Times particularly was targeting my, Michael Tubbs with disgusting anti-Black information. And because 205 Times was this trusted community resource, people didn't necessarily know the difference. And so, uh, you know, if we don't, if we don't go back to that bread and butter work, um, that groups like Media Justice, Repress, and you know other, and, and Shorenstein as well, and, and Color of Change and others are doing around 
journalism and preservation of journalism and 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 radio stations and um, you know local news. I think if we if we don't work to save save that stuff and if we don't work to save like physical spaces where people can build community, um, that is going to allow disinformation and and the tech economy to really overtake everything in continuously harmful ways. Mm. There's a lot of great stuff in there, and it uh, reminds me of a conversation my colleague Vivian Schiller had with Margaret Sullivan about the importance mm. of restoring local news. So, yeah, absolutely, lots of folks. We can't lose you there. We can't forget about the old fights. <laughs> we absolutely, yeah. Well, and I, I'm looking forward to your book on on offline organizing as well. Um, before I let you go, I have to give you the opportunity. Um, you know, the commission is using these briefings to help inspire their prioritization in this first phase of their work. So where should they focus and perhaps where should they not focus uh, is a question I, I want to end with. Um, if you have any advice for them on things you think are important when they're thinking about the harms that face marginalized black and communities of color uh, in the space of disinformation and misinformation, where would you point them or where would you wave them off? Hmm. Hi, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, I still think, you know, it's important to really make sure that 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 people don't prescribe antidotes or solutions to a community without that community at the table. Um, I was just telling someone the other day that actually when when um, Chicago saw uh, the disproportionate num rollout of um, vaccinations, they, they worked with the local churches. And Trinity um, United Church of Christ actually has some great content on YouTube of, of stuff they were doing that was really nailing, I think, a lot of messaging around being able to talk to, to Black people and say, we understand why you may have questions and you should ask those questions. And we're not gonna, we're not gonna tell you to just shut up and take the vaccine, ask those questions. But also know that Black people are dying and hear the different ways in which we as a community need to work together to have interventions to save our community. And so I, th I thought the messaging and the vehicle and their ability to get those numbers up in the community was really crucial. And I think it just speaks to like, I think and nonprofits, we can kind of sit in our ivory towers, usually in coastal offices and think that we know best for, you know, someone in Iowa or like, you know, someone in the other communities. But I think more, uh, more work with community activists, more use of what we think is dated technology like radio and the newspapers that do exist and the preservation of those media spaces, I think continues to be important and, and really also starting to think innovatively. Like I, I threw out that piece around the algorithmic rewards and like some of the other ways in which we can, we could shift the conversation so that we're not just talking about this in a way that lends itself to a false conversation around censorship, but that we're actually opening up opportunities for us to truly exist as community online and hold ourselves accountable, accountable online and, and working with things like micro influencers, not necessarily the influencer like the Kardashians, but the people that have these like micro communities in, you know, online that have these video views that are able to like push trusted information to um, the people that follow them. I think we, we really have to think creatively about the solutions um, because we're not gonna move faster than tech, but there's a lot of ways in which we can be smarter. 
that's a perfect place to end. I'm going to leave it there. Randy, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for giving us so much of your time and for your insights, for your work and your advocacy. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me.